Thank you again for this time that we can gather together in the name of your son Jesus to love each other and to express our love for you. We pray more than anything else, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would fall upon us in a way that is fresh and vital and life-changing. Not that we dictate the terms to you or describe how you can stir among your people, but we offer ourselves to you to do anything that pleases you, God. I pray especially that your spirit would manifest unity and love in this church. And now as we look to your word, we ask that you would speak to our hearts, that we would be nourished and edified um, to the glory of Christ Jesus. And in his church we pray. Amen. You may know the name of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a Protestant uh, pastor and theologian uh, as Nazi Germany was uh, building and consequently he taught in an underground seminary and you might know uh, some of his works but um, today I want to talk to you about a book that he wrote called Life Together. Um, He wrote this, like I said, between the two world wars at a time when when the world was uh, really uh, changing and he believed that the church was not displaying what the church ought to look like, that the church was uh, giving in to the, the government and the church was giving in to organization and um, the church was giving in to fear and suspicion. And so consequently he was teaching the church that the outstanding thing that ought to be displayed by Christians is that we'd live together in harmony, that, we would, that there would be love expressed to one another. He believed very strongly that we are in fact our brother's keeper. Um, and so he, he wrote on, on, on that theme. So, The premise of his book is without Christ there is discord between God and man and discord between men and men, but that Christ has opened the way to God and Christ has opened the opportunity for us to love our our, our brothers. And so he opens the book with this quote from Psalms 133 verse 1, which says how good it is and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And then he goes on to express several different examples, how the church can express that love and unity and how we come together as a community. And he detailed the necessity of the church functioning as a living, vibrant organism, not just simply as an institution. And he called this the community of love. he, He wondered at the difference between what he sees in the church today and what he sees described in the first century or in the church of Acts. And he wonders how it is we have this disparity between what the church is supposed to look like and what the church actually does look like. And he concluded um, consequently that the church should perform, should function, should appear as the living body of Christ and that we are to work together exercising our spiritual gifts Um, to help the church and to help one another um, working in the body so that the body is edified and that the community on the outside looking in sees Christ in us. Now, interestingly, that's exactly what Paul has been talking to us about through our study in the book of Romans. So Bonhoeffer concludes, when the people of God come together to share their lives openly and freely, accepting each other with a kind of unconditional positive regard, there's a sort of social spiritual chemistry that emerges and those who come together experience a delightful cohesion and sense of belonging. Now the passage that we're looking at today is about life together, much like the title of this book. 
It's about how we are to express mutual fellowship, how we are to experience a brotherhood of love within the church. Now, I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me to where we left off last week. Turn to Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. Now, at the beginning of Romans chapter 12, Paul has been making a very clear transition, a distinction between the doctrinal portion that he's been talking about through the last 11 chapters, and now he moves to the application portion. Now that we've learned all of this doctrine, now that we've learned about all the teaching from this, there, what's the practical conclusion? What's the application that all this doctrine ought to display in the church? And Paul begins in chapter 12 by making a plea to us in view of God's tender mercies. Again, remember through chapters 1 through 11, he's been telling us what those tender mercies are, and specifically those tender mercies are that we are justified by faith, that our sins have been forgiven because of the atonement of Christ Jesus, that God works all things together for our good, and that God calls his people to himself. So everything that Paul has been expounding through the doctrine that he's been building in the last 11 chapters, Paul is now describing these as the mercies of God. In view of considering that these mercies of God have been poured out to you, how ought we to live? And so you look at verse 1 of chapter 12, I appeal to you, brothers, therefore, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Then you look ahead to verse 4. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So all the focus of the doctrine is now pointed at the, the application of the church. He's, he's, been, he's been describing to us these tender mercies um, in a general way, He's been telling us about how we have been each given spiritual gifts, and those gifts are applied to the function of the church, that we all have a spiritual gift, and we are to use that spiritual gift so that the church grows and it's healthy. So he's been, he's been describing a, a dimension of, of sacrificial service. So now, when we get to verse 9, verse 9 to 21, he's describing for us how that sacrificial service would look like in, in a church, how we are to walk in love, He's, how we are to demonstrate love for the brethren. And again, that's what life together is all about. It is a demonstration of Christian love. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. 
for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now it's important that we, as we begin this text that we reiterate the context has to do with the church. All of this has to do with life together. It's about how we conduct ourselves in the context of the church. Now we need to be reminded of that context because it's very tempting when you look at this passage, when you get to the talk about, um, about those who persecute you, about those who do evil to you, about those who make peace difficult, it's tempting for us to think, oh, he's talking about outsiders and how they function towards Christians. But look, we have to stay in the context. The context has to do with what happens in the church. So he begins this whole thing talking about this is what love looks like in the church. Now, unlike everything else that we've been studying through the book of Romans, remember there's been really long passages, long sentences, deep thoughts about theology. All of a sudden we get to this part here and each one of these things is rather a staccato. There's brief little like bullet points in a, in a PowerPoint presentation. They, they seem unconnected. There's these little short segmented sentences. And again, he, he's, he's giving these ethical injunctions about what we're to be like in the church, how the church is to, to act towards one another. Now, I've heard it often said that a sermon is not a sermon unless there's a presentation of the gospel. Well, there, there's lots of times that you hear sermons and there's not a presentation of the gospel. Last week was one of them. But if you look at this text here, there's no reference to Jesus. There's no reference to salvation. There's no reference to grace. There's no um, reason or, or, or motive given in the text here before us today. But there's one thing that binds all of this together. Paul is talking about what love looks like in the church, practical applications. And he begins by saying, let love be genuine. Uh, love one another with a, with a brotherly affection, uh, verse 10. So that's the context, that's the, 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 uh, the unifying thing which binds all of these ethical injunctions together. So he begins by saying, let love be genuine, or another way of saying it, let love be sincere. And there's just two words in the Greek, agape and hupakatros. So you actually know those because you know agape, everybody knows that that's love, agape is God's love, and hupakatras, like, it comes from the word hip, or we get the word hypocrite. Uh, a hypocrite was the person in, in a Greek play who you'd know what their character was because they wore a mask, and that would tell you who they were pretending to be. So here Paul is saying, let love not look like a stage play, not be an act, not be a, a theater performance, let love be without hypocrisy. Don't pretend to love. Well, why would we need to be told that? Because we do it all the time. You know, we hug people that we don't even like, and, and, we, and we act like we're friends with them. But it's, it's hypocritical, you know, to pretend that we have affection for someone that, that we don't like. Of course, the, the ultimate hypocrisy was Judas, who, who said he loved Jesus and yet betrayed him with a kiss. Let love be without hypocrisy. Uh, verse 10, uh, love one another with a brotherly affection. Okay, now you have been introduced to three of the four words in Greek for love. So agape, 
love without hypocrisy, verse 9. Verse 10 introduces two more of the four words in Greek for love. Um, philio is like in Philadelphia, love of, of the brother. Philio is brotherly love. And storge, which is familial love, the love you have for family. The only love that's not mentioned here is eros, and that's um, romantic love or passionate love. So he's introducing these concepts of love here, and specifically he's saying you should love one another, verse 10, with a love that is brotherly and familially. You should love each other like brothers. You should love each other like family. Now, we often hear about agape being the highest form of love. That's true because we describe God's love to us as being agape. It's dispassionate. It's not dependent. It's, it's love that has intention and acts accordingly, not love that, that has uh, a feeling behind it. But what Paul is saying here is not that. He's saying you should love each other tenderly, affectionately, with feeling. Of course, you can't, you can't order somebody to have any affection for somebody else. But here we are. Here we actually have this ordering, love each other in a brotherly love, love each other in a familial love, have that kind of affectionate love for one another. And then what follows is a long list of what genuine, looks, genuine love looks like, what genuine love acts like. And you see here, as we go into this description, there's a picture in miniature of what love is like in heaven. And he's saying that is an example of the kind of love that, that should exist in the church. It should be categorically different from love outside of the church. There should be something here which looks particularly like God, because you are filled with the Holy Spirit and you have a Savior who is Jesus Christ and you worship one God. That God love ought to be evident in the church. One guy said, I don't know if I'm a Christian. And his friend said, if you were a Christian, you would know it because if you're in relationship with Jesus Christ, you'll know that you're in relationship. So the love that we are to have is love because we're in relationship with God, with with the Holy Spirit, with Jesus Christ, and we're in relationship with each other when we come to the church. We're not just individuals who come to hear a lecture. We're in relationship. We are a family. In heaven, there's this perfect oneness between the triune God. And, and there's a, this, this oneness, this, this divine unity is what we should be aspiring for, actually what we should be aspiring to maintain since it's already been provided for us, in Christ. It's, it's an example, it's a picture of the oneness that ought to exist in the church. A disturbingly false view of love is very evident among Christians today. It is the idea that we have to love ourselves first. And we're told you can't really love God until you finally figure out how to love yourself. This, this self-love is the essential prerequisite to loving God and loving others. In Paul's mind, that is pure hypocrisy. In my mind, it is pure stupidity. To say that you have to love yourself before you can love others. Love, by very definition, subordinates self-interest to the interest of others. Christian love, above all else, ought to be surrendering ourselves to other people. It ought to be subordinating our interests. Verse 12 says, be devoted to one another out of brotherly love. 
give preference to one another. You should be running to the front of the line, not to gain accolades, not to be honored, but to express honor for other people. That's the kind of preference that we are to have for one another. We are to honor each other. Self-esteem needs to be subordinate to others' esteem. That's what Christian love looks like. The literal translation here might be, in respect to honor, lead the way for each other. Don't wait around for people to recognize your contributions and then praise you. You should run ahead. You should be alert to the way other people are contributing to the church, and you should be first to give them honor. Now, why do we need to be told that? Because in practice, we do the very opposite thing. I do it too. You know, when we're, when we're together, we, 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 we're often thinking about that I need to be recognized for the contributions that I make. I need to be appreciated for sufficiently for all the things that I do. And in so doing, we betray an attitude. Well, I betray my attitude that I'm really interested in self-esteem, in self-love. I want to be appreciated. I want to be honored. And Paul's saying, do just the opposite. Honor others. Appreciate others. A lot of churches have been destroyed and ministries have been ruined because we, we have this jealous heart. We see other people being acknowledged. We see other people being honored. We see other people being recognized. And we think we're not being adequately recognized. And it's that jealousy that tears churches apart. That's certainly why Paul wrote to the Philippians saying, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only for your own interests, but also the interests of others. See, that's what true love functions like. It looks for opportunity to give honor and respect to other people. Verse 12. <coughs> Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. So now there's three more items that are brought forth here, and it could be paraphrased like that. Insofar as we have cause to hope, let us be joyful. Insofar as we have cause for pain, let us hold out. Insofar as we have a door of prayer, let us continue to use it. See, in the Bible, we talk first about hope. We don't mean the same thing that we mean in, in our culture. When we talk about hope, we mean we wish something would take place. In the Bible, when we talk about hope, it is a confidence that God has made a promise we just haven't experienced the fulfillment of that. But we are fully confident that if God has said something, he will make it happen. And of course, the ultimate hope of the Christian is that Christ is coming again. We believe that to be true. We don't see it, but God has promised it to us. That is the Christian hope. And so like Abraham, we, we have this attitude that we are looking forward to the city whose foundations, whose architect, and builder is God. More than anything else, that hope sets the Christian apart from the rest of the world. Now, secondly, he says, well, while we're waiting for that glory to be revealed, sometimes, not so much for us, but certainly throughout history and in certainly other parts of the world, sometimes while the Christian is waiting for the fulfillment of that hope, he experiences afflictions and, and sufferings. And what does Paul tell us? He says, in respect to affliction, you need to be patient. 
And that's not just in some sort of fatalistic, stoic sense that you just got to toughen up and stop complaining. No, we are patient because of that hope. And we are patient when we suffer because we ultimately know God is in control. Things are not happening randomly to me. God is ultimately in control, and God will ultimately sort things out. Be patient, be joyful in hope, be, be patient in affliction, be faithful in prayer. This is a, something I wish I could preach an entire sermon on, is, is this, this, this subject of, of prayer in the church. Through prayer, we are given access to the power and the grace of God. And God has placed this, uh, this passion in our heart. Every Christian prays. Every Christian has this uh, communion, this relationship, this talking at or talking with, with God. But uh, not all churches are active in prayer. Prayer is the access through which God provides for the church, but how much of our prayer time is that God would bless our church and move our church forward? Um, Charles Spurgeon said, the condition of the church may be very accurately gauged by its prayer meetings. So is the prayer meeting a grace-o-meter, and from it we may judge the amount of divine working among a people. If God be near a church, it must pray. And if he not be there, one of the first tokens of his absence will be slothfulness in prayer. There's a fellow by the name of D.E. Host. He was the guy who took over for Hudson Taylor in China. And D.E. Host had two churches that he was ministering in. They were separated by two mountain ranges. And the church that he was living in, or the town that he was living in, the church that he was working with, was doing much worse than the church that was beyond two mountain ranges that he only occasionally visited. And every time he would go there, he would find that those Christians flourishing while the Christians among whom he was working were struggling. And it really bothered him. You know, how is it that I've invested my time and my life and my ministry and the counseling and preaching in this church, and they're doing so much poorer than the church just on the other side of the range. By the way, his book was called Beyond the Ranges. And the Lord showed him that the answer was that although he was spending all this time in, in counseling and in, and in teaching and, and ministering to those in the church that he was living with, he spent far more time praying for the church beyond the ranges. And he concluded from that that the the basic elements of making disciples in the church were prayer, 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 and the word. And about those per, um, uh, proportions and, and, and in that in importance. See, I, I mention that because whether you realize it or not, this church depends upon you who are praying for her. We owe a great debt of gratitude to, to those that are that are the prayers of the church, the, the prayer warriors. And the reason many don't come to prayer meeting or don't pray for the church is just frankly, it's not all that fun. Well, let me ask you, does a soldier fight the battle only when it's fun? Or perhaps we don't realize that we are, in fact, engaged in a spiritual battle. The Lord had a lot to say about prayer. You go through all these stories in the gospel, and in almost every case, the bottom line is that we should pray more. It is not a, it's not an exhortation to pray more eloquently. 
it's not an exhortation that we would pray um, more conglomerately. The bottom line is that you should just pray. Just bring it to the Lord. The only reason that I can think of why we don't pray, there's two. One, we don't think we need God's help. We think perhaps we can manage this on our own. We are adequate for the task ourselves. Or secondly, we don't really believe that God is a loving Heavenly Father. I mean, why else would we not pray? Why else would we not be continually in prayer? Verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. Now, Paul's not thinking primarily of money here. He's not, in fact, he doesn't, he's not thinking specifically about money at all. He's thinking about the needs of Christians in the church and the need for us to identify those needs and address them. If, if a person is mourning, we should identify his sorrow and we should mourn with him. If a person is lonely, we should be company for them. Uh, if, if a person is financially distressed, yes, we should, uh, we should address that need as best we are able. It's not a coincidence that Jesus actually made that the test of whether we are Christians or not. Look at uh, Matthew 25. I can't remember the verse right now, but the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, come and take your inheritance, which has been prepared for you before the foundations of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat and I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink and I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came and visited me. And the righteous will say to the king, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you? And the king will say unto them, truly I say to you, whatever you did for the one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did unto me. He's not saying that you're just generally a nice guy to the world. The specific focus here is on Christ's brothers and sisters in the church. Whatever you did for these, you did for me. And then, of course, conversely, the very scary um, uh, counterpoint to that was Jesus will say to those on his uh, left, depart from me, you who are uh, cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, for I was hungry and you, did, you gave me nothing and I was thirsty. You did not give me something to drink and, and so on. There's a very practical application here. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is not just theoretical. I don't know anything that could be more practical or plain than this. To love one another, to honor one another, to serve one another, to pray for one another, to meet the needs this is the very heart of the Christian faith. This is the very essence of what we say we believe. Verse 14. Remember he's talking about the church here. It's tempted to think that he's talking about outside the church And when we get here. Bless those who persecute you and bless do not curse. Again, the context is the church. The practice is what does life together look like? 
Bless the ones who misunderstand and misrepresent your motives and they slander you. Pray for them that God would be gentle with them and expose the errors of ways. Isn't this what, exactly what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Where are we? Matthew 5, 44. And it's kind of a reiteration of what Jesus had said earlier. This is, this is very unnatural behavior for mortal men. In fact, it's actually impossible behavior as long as we are clinging to some grand image of who we are, as long as we imagine that we have position or, or honor, as long as we imagine that we're important or we have reputation to protect, we can't. We can't bless those who misrepresent us. It's impossible for someone who, who cherishes a wrong that's been suffered to them, who's unwilling to let go of their own pride. Again, but this is what makes us distinctly Christian. It's Christ-like. It's only possible by the empowering of the Holy Spirit. The one who's striving to be big will have a very big problem with living this out, while the one who's striving to be a little will have a very little problem living this out. Verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Who exactly are the people of low position? Again, we're talking about the context of the church here, life together. Who are the people, in verse 16, who are low position? I think largely depends on you know, where you stand. A lot of Christians think that there are these other Christians who are of low position because they smoke or they drink or they go to movies, or they go to dances, or they play cards. Remember that? And we think these guys are compromisers. We don't say they're not saved. We just say they flirt too much with the world, so we don't want to have anything to do with them. So we distance ourselves from them because um, they're not like us. They're compromisers. Let me ask you, who did Jesus hang out with? Some people will think, people of low position or people who are below us on the socioeconomic scale. You know, they're, they're people without good jobs. Maybe they don't have no jobs at all. They're people that have less education than we do. Uh, they don't have technical skills. They're on public assistance. They're single moms, street kids, white trash. These people are beneath us. They're not like us. We want friends that are at least our equals and maybe a little above us because that makes us look good to make ourselves parallel with them. Let me ask you again, who did Jesus hang out with? Now some people think that the people that are below us are just simply people who, um, who we don't like because somehow they've offended us. They're Democrats or liberals or tree huggers or vegetarians at the barbecue. <laughs> they're just different than we are. Perhaps they're people who somewhere along the line they've, they've crossed us. Maybe we feel like we've been disrespected by them. We were not appreciated by them. They're, they insulted us. They misrepresented our motives. That somehow they slandered us. We don't want to associate with those kind of people. Therefore, they are people below us. We're not like those kind of people. Again, let me ask you, who did Jesus hang out with? Paul wrote 
in Philippians 2, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from His love, any fellowship with the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Have the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only for your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being found in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. That's the example. A good friend of mine, a pastor by the name of Mark Brewer in the church where I was ordained, it was a big church, it had a lot of money. Uh, Mark was a very charismatic uh, popular, well-known pastor. And on one occasion, Mark had been invited to perform a wedding for the daughter of this very wealthy uh, East Coast multimillionaire. He flew his private jet to Denver to pick Mark up and fly him to his campus, where Mark was picked up on a miniature railroad and driven up to the main house, past all the tents that were set up for uh, the, the wedding. Uh, this guy had everything. He was a big man. He had big money. He had lots of friends. He was well-known. He had power and influence, lots of stuff. In short, here's a guy the world would consider a big shot. He's the epitome of what we aspire to be. Why is that? If you aspire for the world's things, the reason is that you are convinced this is as close to heaven as you're going to get. Now let me introduce you to someone else, Minnie. Her husband was never more than just a common farmhand. Um, they had long been retired when I met her. These people literally had nothing. They lived on Social Security. They had one beat-up old car that smoked terribly. Many couldn't drive it because of her poor eyesight. They lived, you, you would not believe this, but this is absolutely the gospel truth. They lived in a house without central heat and did not have modern appliances in it. Many had developed this mental condition that had made it very difficult for her to speak in sentences. And we used to go over to her house for prayer meeting and she could not form a sentence, but she could read her Bible and she had memorized huge chunks of scripture that she could um, just eloquently speak out. So many spent her days reading the Bible, memorizing scripture, and, 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 and praying for people. She prayed for the people she knew. She prayed for the people that they knew. She prayed for her church. She prayed for the pastor. She prayed for her community. She prayed for her country. She labored fervently in prayer until eventually her illness took her life. She, she never amounted to anything. Only a handful of people in that little town would even remember that she existed. She's hardly missed. The only time Minnie's name ever appeared in the newspaper was a short obituary, the kind the newspaper does gratuitously. Now let me ask you, in comparison to these two people I've just introduced you to, who from heaven's point of view was a big shot. 
from the view of eternity, which one of these people made the biggest impact? Who had this greater standing? Which one of these was really the greater gem among mankind? Verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. You notice something right up front here about what Paul says about um, living peacefully with others. He begins by saying, if possible, when it's possible, as far as it depends on you. There's a, there's a, a condition clause right there, right? As far as it depends on you, as far as it's possible. So he's, we recognize two potential problems to having peace. Again, context here, we're talking about peace in the church, not peace between Christians and non-Christians. Peace among brothers in the church. If it's possible, you should live at peace. The two things that would negate the possibility for peace are, first of all, there could be issues at stake that make peace impossible um, even if the, the Christian, even if the, the one seeking peace wants it. I mean, obviously, you can't, uh, you can't barter away truth for the sake of peace. You can't sacrifice truth um, for, for peace. You can't, you can't violate purity for the sake of peace. You, injustice cannot be condoned. James uh, 3.17, uh, I think... The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure and then peace-loving. So there's a prior necessary commitment to peace, and that is purity, truth, honesty, justice, you know, other dispensable, excuse me, other indispensable matters that would make peace unattainable. We have to realize that. We have to realize that it doesn't always um, depend on us to have peace, that of course, you also realize that there are occasions when evil has to be resisted, and we have to fight against evil, even to the point of taking up arms and going to war to resist evil. So when we pursue peace, it doesn't mean that, that we don't fight for peace. But as far as it depends on you, you encourage peace, uh, even if the other person doesn't want it. Verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let me ask you something, rhetorically. When you became a Christian, did you not receive Jesus both as Savior and Lord? And by definition, if he is your Lord, then you do what he tells you to do. If you don't do what he tells you to do, then don't say you're a Christian and certainly he's not your Lord. I mean, just that's operationally defined, right? When we were born of the Spirit, when we were saved, remember we talked about this last week, you went through a metamorphosis, a change of character. You became something you were not before. You are in the process of being changed into the likeness of Christ. That's God's intention for you. That's the Holy Spirit's working in you. He's making you less like the derelict you used to be, and he's making you more like his son, Christ Jesus. 
And Christ Jesus says, when you are wronged, you are to turn the other cheek, to be like him. He's not only saying that's what he does, and of course we see literally that's what he does, but he's also commanding us, his followers, to do that too. And that all sounds great, and you're in full agreement with me. Yes, that is in fact what the Bible tells us to do. Yes, that is what the Lord Jesus tells us to do. But it's hard. And the bottom line is, I don't want to. When I feel slandered, when my motives are misunderstood, when, my, when I feel attacked, my response is that I want to defend myself. I want to explain myself. I want to correct their misunderstanding of my motives. But what does God say? Don't do it. Don't repay evil for evil. Again, the context is the church. Don't repay your brother, Christian, who offends you with acting in kind. There was an occasion when Martin Luther, the peasants were attacking this flour mill, and Martin Luther stood between the attackers and the flour mill, telling them that they couldn't do that. And they said, but teacher, we have to live. And he said, no. You have to do what's right. When you are slandered, when you are misunderstood or misrepresented, you say, but I have to stand up for myself. I have to defend myself. I have to set things right. No, you don't. You have to do what is right. But it's hard. Well, of course it's hard. Humanly speaking, it is in fact impossible because when we don't set things right, when we don't retaliate, when we don't correct them, a piece of me dies. But then again, isn't crucifying ourselves and taking up our cross daily what we've been commanded to do? But can't we at least defend ourselves? Well, if you do, then God can't do it for you. And that's a big risk, not defending yourself, not correcting people who slandered you. You know what the risk is? Maybe not only will they misunderstand my motives, but they'll con convince other people my motives were wrong. If I don't correct them, if I don't vindicate myself, their assault to me will appear to be justified. Other people might have cause to dislike me or to become suspicious of me. You know what? In my experience, that's true. That's exactly what will happen to you. If you don't defend yourself, other people will probably be suspicious of you, question your motives, be, be cautious. But by not avenging yourselves, he says, don't repay evil with evil. You're not only not pandering to the evil which is coming from the outside, but you're also dealing with the evil from the inside. Because this self-protective, self-defending vindictiveness is not of God. This is from our lower nature. This desire to, to set people straight, to make, to make the, 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 the balance of the scales, to get even. This is evil within us. So you're dealing with the evil from the outside, but more importantly, you're dealing with the evil from the inside. Because retaliation is, is not from God. It's from our lower sinful nature. That's why God tells us, I'll take care of it. We think maybe he will eventually, 
but we want it taken care of now. The bigger problem with that is we know that God is gracious and forgiving because he's been gracious and forgiving with us. Would he be gracious and forgiving of that jerk that, that offended me? And then where's the justice? He gets off with it. We achieve the greatest conquest over evil in our own souls when we do good to someone who does harm to us. It is remarkable, it is certainly supernatural, it is spiritually mature, but that's what we are called to do. And perhaps you're thinking, I know I've been here too, that you agree with all this. This is in fact what the Bible tells us to do, but I can't do it. I don't care if this is the Christian way. I don't care if this is an example that Christ is leaving for me. I, I can't do it. And there's nothing that's ever going to bring me to the point of wanting to do good to somebody who's hurt me so badly. Fair enough. I think you have to start with where you are, and if that's where you are, you have to recognize it. But I think you also need to recognize that to those who belong to Jesus Christ, who have surrendered to him as Lord and Savior, he does not give us that choice. He does not grant us that option. If you're going to follow him, you have to obey him, whether you like it or not, because if we are Christians, we must. The early church was famous for the way that they behaved towards one another, which was categorically different from the rest of the world. It was so authentic, the way they loved each other, and so um, genuine that it, that it influenced the rest of the world. And there became a famous saying, behold how they love one another. Now that original saying was attributed to um, Aristides of, of Athens. Aristides was a, a Greek Christian in the second century who was also a, a famous philosopher and he was writing to the emperor Hadrian uh, an explanation for the Christian faith, a defense. So a defense of the faith was known as an apology, not that you're saying I'm sorry for, but you are explaining. An apology is an explanation. So he writes a letter which is famously titled The Apology of Aristides to Emperor Hadrian, and the letter is delivered to him somewhere between 124 and 133 A.D. So he's writing about the behavior of Christians and he's describing, it's a long lengthy letter, I'm going to read you a little short section of it, but he's describing how um, these, these Christians deeply cared for and loved one another in such a way that the rest of the world marveled and thought the love of the Christians was peculiar. Peculiar, not in a negative sense, as if they're derelicts, but no, peculiar in the sense that the rest of the world doesn't practice that kind of graciousness and genuine love, a love that is so clearly demonstrated by, by action, a love which is obvious and, and undeniable. And so the outsiders would be tempted to question not only this amazing love that the Christians had for one another, but the source of that love, which was Jesus Christ. They, they, they lived out the command that Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. If you can take anything home today, it'll be that. By this, the world will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. Aristides, in his letter 
to Hadrian said, but the Christians, O king, while they went about and made search, have found the truth. And as we learn from their writings, they have come nearer to truth and genuine knowledge than the rest of the nations. For they know and trust in God, the creator of heaven and earth, in whom and from whom are all things, to whom there is no other God as a companion, from whom they have received commandments which are engraved upon their minds and observed in hope and expectation of the world which is to come. Wherefore, they do not commit adultery, nor fornication, nor bear false witness, nor embezzle what is held in pledge, nor cover, covet what is not theirs. They honor father and mother and show kindness to those near them. And whenever they are judges, they judge uprightly. They do not worship idols made in the image of man. And whosoever would not that others should do to them, they do not do to others. And of the food which is consecrated to idols, they do not eat for they are pure. Further, if one or the other of them have bondmen or bondwomen or children, through love towards them, they persuade them to become Christians. And when they do so, they call them brethren without distinction. They love one another. And from widows, they do not turn away their esteem. And they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of their Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessities and if possible to redeem him, they set him free. And if there is among them any that is poor and needy and if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. They observe the precepts of their Messiah with much care, living justly and soberly as the Lord their God commanded them. Such, O king, is the commandment of the law of the Christians, and such is their manner of life. Now, as believers, we would be criminally negligent just to read about that from the first and second century and applaud, well done, well done, without making a very careful self-examination. How is it that the church once looked like that and people were one to Christ because of their love. And how different the church looks today. Their example should make an impact on, on our hearts and on our lives today. It ought still to be said of the followers of Christ, behold how they love one another. And this, as Bonhoeffer would say, is our life together. Let's pray. Father God, once again, I plead with you to pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. This fellowship, this physical manifestation of the Bride of Christ it is not speaking in tongues and prophecies and ecstasy that we seek, but more importantly, that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit would be displayed in the way that we love one another and serve each other and forgive each other and seek to show honor and appreciation to one another. Please, Father, change us. Don't let us be satisfied with being an educational institution. Don't let us come here to watch the drama of redemption performed for us by the worship team and the exposition of the scripture. Father God, pour your spirit out on this church that the world around might take notice and say 
Look how they love one another. What an amazing God they serve. I am so confident that this is your will for us. And I pray it in the powerful name of your son, Jesus. join us. Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.